0: Kurdish forces have a long history of siding with the United States, and the United States has a long history of eventually selling them out. The latest iteration of this dynamic unfolded when Donald Trump ordered a small U.S. military contingent to withdraw from Kurdish-controlled parts of northeastern Syria. The move came after a phone call between Trump and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in which Trump apparently acquiesced to a Turkish military operation against Kurdish fighters in the region. As I'm recording this, the situation is rapidly evolving. So what I opted to do with this episode is speak with an expert on Kurdish politics and diplomacy, Morgan Kaplan who provide some background and context so that you can understand events as they unfold. Morgan Kaplan is the executive editor of the academic journal International Security and is at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. We kick off discussing the YPG. These are the Kurdish forces who are the backbone of the fight against ISIS in Syria and who control territory near the Turkish border. The U.S. had backed them, while Turkey long accused them of being terrorists. If and when Turkey launches a military operation in Syria, it would be against the YPG. We then discuss some of the broader geopolitics of the situation, including Turkish interests in the region, the role of Moscow and Damascus, and of course, the United States' fraught history with the Kurds. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to peruse our archives. You can also use the contact button there to send me an email. Let me know what is on your mind. If there are subjects or topics you'd want me to cover or people you want to interview, please let me know. And a note before we begin from Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Morgan Kaplan, Executive Editor of International Security. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season 4 launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: So the the SDF, or the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, is a conglomerate or an alliance of groups on the ground in northern Syria that has predominantly served as the partner of the United States in the fight against the Islamic State. Uh, in the region. Now, this group is composed of many different actors um, from different ethnic backgrounds and from different locations, but they're predominantly led by the Kurdish People's Protection Units, or the YPG, uh, which is the main group that, you know, makes kind of their leadership in some of their main decision-making and makes up a bulk of the forces itself. And so while the SDF is not itself Kind of build as a Kurdish organization, um, it is very much largely uh, composed and led by Kurds, which is why the two are sometimes discussed synonymously.
0: And going back a little bit, how did or how has the YPG assisted in the fight against ISIS?
1: Sure. I mean, they've done a tremendous amount and have essentially you know borne the brunt uh, of the fighting. Uh, where the United States has been in the north, Um, they've lost about, um, the SDF has lost about 11,000 fighters in the war against the Islamic State. Um, Initially, the U.S. didn't actually have relations with them. Um, All that sort of changed uh, halfway through the Syrian civil war after the Islamic State uh, assault on Kobani, which is a town in northern Syria, and then slowly this relationship started to build where the United States was providing uh, essentially weaponry and assistance to the group. And slowly and slowly that relationship began to grow and grow and grow, um, where now these two actors um, have essentially uh, become real partners on the ground. And so they have been at the forefront of a lot of the fighting in that region um, to to kind of take back territory from the Islamic State and they do gain uh, a lot of the credit for actually a lot of the military victories against the Islamic State in northern Syria.
0: And so now they are the dominant military force and presumably also the kind of political force in control of, of what kind of territory are we talking about?
1: Sure. So so the, the territory itself uh, is limited, but this is the territory in northeastern Syria. Um, the YPG had some territory in Afrin, but that was actually taken uh, backed by a Turkish incursion um, in early 2018 into the north, and so they control this swath of territory that's in the northeast. Um, now, with the most recent announcement from the White House, oh, we'll get that, to that. Don't worry. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the idea, though, is that it, you know the the Turkish government wants to roll back. Um, this amount of control that the YPG and the SDF has in the north. And so what we'll probably see if they do uh, go forward with any sort of military operations, the, the Turks, that is, um, is you'll see their territory be, being carved out more uh, from north going south.
0: So you know, while the YPG, which is the main actor in the SDF, uh, are you know have been key U.S. allies in the fight against the Islamic State, they, of course, are adversaries of Turkey, or I should say Turkey feels that they are their adversaries. Can you explain um, the sort of roots and history of Erdogan's uh, relationship with the YPG specifically.
1: Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a long, <laughs> it's oh, yeah. a long history to be sure. Um, but, but the short of it, you know, for our purposes is that, you know, Turkey views the YPG as a wing of the Kurdistan workers party or the PKK, which has been fighting a decades long, um, insurgency against Turkey. Um, the two have been at odds with each other for a long amount of time. They've fought bloody wars, uh, against each other. And so the fact that the Turks see the YPG as effectively the same actor means that they consider them to be also um, as much of an enemy to the Turkish state as the PKK itself. Do they and have so- a point
0: And that? I mean, the PKK has launched, you know, violent attacks uh, against, you know, Turkish military and, and civilian uh, targets in the past. Do, do they have a point? Is the YPG and the PKK kind of two sides of the same coin?
1: Well, they certainly have relations to one another. Um, that That is something that's not really disputed. Um, the question is, is where do you draw the line between the two being a different organization? And so the United States has gone to great lengths uh, to, to make this distinction saying, well, the YPG is not the PKK. They may have links. They may have a shared historical past, um, but at least in this, you know, Day and age, they are a different organization. Um, but you know where you kind of draw the line on that is going to differ depending on which actor you are. And from Ankara's perspective, the the two are similar, and that's why they are taking such a strong stance against the YPG in northern Iraq. Uh, excuse me, northern Syria.
0: And so, you know, the situation is obviously unfolding as we're we're speaking. So my intention with this conversation is to try to kind of explain and give listeners kind of the context and background they need sure. to understand events as they are unfolding. Um, that said, what do we know about Turkey's intentions uh, right now in terms of what Erdogan has said, they seek to do in the area controlled by the YPG right now, and how they intend to sort of you know, advance militarily on that area if they do.
1: Sure, and again, you know, we're, worth stating, everything that's happening these days is happening uh, very fast. The situation is extremely fluid. It's hard to know um, everyone's you know immediate intentions. Uh, but we can, you know, discuss in hypotheticals and, and and make some guesses as to what certain actions would look like if they were to happen. Um, now, the the main thing that's under consideration here um, is we are talking very specifically about this border region that essentially the United States and Turkey had been in negotiations over as a way to kind of create a buffer or a safe zone or a security mechanism, depending on you know what side you're on, to kind of keep uh, Ankara happy. With the security situation in northern Syria, where they feel like they have a buffer with the YPG, but also that the YPG has a buffer uh, with Turkey. So what we're essentially going to see, if there is some sort of incursion, is that it is going to be over this specific uh, territory. Now, this region itself, um, it it. Depends kind of which, uh, you know, it depends kind of which document you're looking at, but but it is probably going to be 20 miles, 30 kilometers that goes in from the border down into Syria. So it is this kind of strip of territory. Now, there are a lot of people who live in that territory. Um, and so this is seen as, you know, 20 miles may not sound like a lot, but it actually is a, a, tre- a tremendous amount in this particular context.
0: And so the idea is to sort of basically like repatriate the refugees who have uh, fled to Turkey to that kind of buffer zone?
1: Well, it's a, it's potentially a few things. So so one, you know, the Turks have talked about repatriation um, of refugees into that buffer zone. The other is also potentially about simply rolling back the Syrian democratic forces and the YPG, um, getting them off the border, keeping them far away from Turkey. Um, And so, so it does have that component of adding individuals to that territory, but also taking them away and pushing them back. And the Syrian Kurds uh, would be the ones uh, bearing the brunt of that uh, incursion.
0: So I guess kind of taking a, a step back a little bit, I'm wondering the, to what extent do you see what's happening Uh, right now, sort of in, in real time as we're speaking as a somewhat inevitable consequence of the geopolitics of the Syrian conflict. I mean, on the one hand, you have, uh, the Kurdish militias who are a stalwart ally of the United States and effective fighters. On the other hand, you have Turkey, which is, you know, a large country and a NATO ally. So it seems almost inevitable that the United States would eventually side with its ally Turkey, which is, you know, a major country over uh, a group of militias, and that it would sort of eventually probably sell out the Kurds in one way or another. Um, I'm wondering if, if sort of you think that what we're seeing now is just sort of an accelerated version of what might have happened eventually.
1: Right. I mean, the, the inevitability question is a bit tricky. You know, on the one hand, you know, I think most observers of of the Syrian conflict would note that it has been America's intentions to withdraw from this area. Um, it's been under discussion for a long period of time, and this was all probably something that was eventually going to happen. Um, however, there there are kind of two things that I think always remained in flux. You know, one was the the kind of pace, the timing, um, and the kind of nature of that withdrawal. Um, doing it slowly, doing it in ways that created security guarantees and political settlements for competing actors in the North, Um, doing it in a way that when there is a withdrawal, to whatever extent, it's going to be a stable one. And so while there may be this inevitable view that, well, the Americans were going to leave anyways, so what does it matter if it's done in this way? The, The issue is that the way actually withdrawal is done is really what's at stake here. Um, it's what determines whether something is going to unfold rapidly in, in a potentially disastrous way on the ground, or whether there will be a slow change uh, in power on the ground that won't necessarily lead to a tremendous amount of fighting. Additionally, there's always been this you know, potentiality that maybe the United States will play some sort of limited role in the North as a kind of arbiter uh, between the different actors – keeping a small force in the north to kind of sit there and tell Turkey and tell the YPG, you know, our presence here in joint cooperation is a way to keep this situation calm and settled. There's not going to be a big American presence, but we are committing uh, politically into a small amount militarily to the stability of this area. And so that was always something that could have potentially happened. Um, But as we've seen with the Sunday announcement Um, that has essentially gone out the window. And so, again, the kind of main point is that some of this may seem inevitable. Um, People have been talking for a long time that at some point the United States would have to choose between Turkey and the Kurds, and odds were high that it was going to be Turkey as a NATO ally. Um, But what is unanticipated um, and what is still shocking is how it happens and how rapidly it happens and presumably um or at least if we have seen with with little kind of consensus and interagency planning
0: um so you've studied you know the geopolitics diplomacy and and politics of um the kurdish regions in syria and in iraq um i guess I'm, i'm curious to learn from you how you put this current episode in sort of the context and history of you know successive US administrations selling out Kurdish interests in one way or another.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean America selling out the Kurds is a time-honored tradition of American foreign policy in the region. Can you like and maybe just
0: briefly walk walk listeners through the sort of highlights or lowlights of of the the those episodes?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so so there's there's a number of ways to slice it. I think you know the most manageable way is to go back to 1975 um, in Iraq. There had been a number of insurgencies against the central government by Iraqi Kurds, um, and in particular, in 1974 to 1975, uh, there was a major conflict between the Iraqi Kurds in Baghdad. Now, in this state, the United States through the Iranians was. Was providing a tremendous amount of support to the Iraqi Kurds, uh, support that essentially kept them fighting uh, this battle. What ultimately happened was that, with very little uh, advanced warning, that support essentially dropped out from under them when the Iranians and Iraq made an agreement in Algiers. And what ultimately happened was suddenly all this American support to the Iranians had just kind of disappeared from them, and they found themselves in a position where they were extremely vulnerable to Baghdad and ultimately the Kurds suffered a pretty catastrophic defeat. So that's kind of, you know, early contemporary history, betrayal number one. Um, After that, you will also talk about Kurds discussing American betrayals uh, during the Iran-Iraq civil war Um, during the Onfall campaign, which was an Iraqi campaign, um, essentially a genocidal campaign against the Kurds in northern Iraq. Um, There was the usage of gas and things like that against civilians. And America was ultimately silent on these issues. And so that was often seen, again, as another form of betrayal, not just by the United States, but by the international community um, in general. Additionally, you have a tricky scenario with the Gulf War in in 1990, 1991, which is the United States, after the war, essentially uh, encourages the Iraqi Kurds and also the Shia in the South to rebel against Saddam Hussein at his weakest point after the war, saying essentially that the U.S. would come and uh, come to the aid of these kind of rebellions if they were to take place. Uh, the Kurds and the Shia do rebel, um, but ultimately it takes the United States quite a long time to actually involve itself. And it ends up being a brutal, brutal um, counterattack by the Iraqis uh, against Shia in the south, but also the Kurds in the north. And so the U.S. does eventually intervene um, however, it was done so, so late that it was perceived in some ways as another example of the Americans letting them down. Then you have the other example uh, most recently, which would be the Iraqi Kurdish referendum, which took place in 2017. Which
0: I believe which we was, spoke about last time when you came on the podcast.
1: We did. Yes. And I could I could be missing other portrayals. It's always it's a uh, betrayal is always possible. <laughs> um, but so in 2017, after. You know, as the war against the Islamic State, particularly in Iraq, was coming to a close, the Kurds uh, felt they had this window of opportunity to make a vote on independence. Now, it wasn't actually a vote to gain independence. There wasn't going to be a change in, you know, Kurdish regional sovereignty in the north, um, but it was to kind of emphasize this this will and desire to get independence. Um, After that vote uh, and during that process, the United States was very aggressively against that process. Um, And in the aftermath, Baghdad had actually gone north um, and attacked Kurdish forces that were stationed in Kirkuk, um, but also throughout disputed territories. And it led to essentially a battle between uh, two of America's allies, uh, Baghdad and the Kurdish Peshmerga. So that was, again, seen as another betrayal because the Americans had not stepped in to make sure that, you know, blows wouldn't come between uh, these two actors in Iraq Mm Then you have, again, going over the border into Syria, you have uh, Afrin, which is a a region in northern Syria where the Turks had essentially attacked the YPG um, in a similar kind of manner that people are predicting that may happen now. Now, the U.S. was very clear uh, from what I understand that it wouldn't involve itself in that particular conflict. But again, it was seen very negatively uh, by Kurds as an incident where the United States may have been a position – to, to keep Turkey from attacking one of its partners so, on the ground but it hadn't and then of course you have a serial draw that was, withdrawal. That was long
0: <laughs> no no I mean it, it's helpful context though I I think for understanding you know the what we may see befall uh, the the Kurds in Northeast Syria right now. I mean, you know, we don't know, you know, we're speaking on, on a Tuesday, you know, tomorrow for all we know on Wednesday, um, the, the Turks may, you know, cross the border and, you know, invade and, and there might be a massacre or not. I mean, or not. We, we just don't know. Um, but we do know though, as, as you just explained that, you know, there is this history of the U S selling out the Kurds. And so I, I guess I'm wondering if you, from a kind of Kurdish perspective, from a Kurdish political perspective, like, why do you keep coming back to the United States? Why do you keep turning to the United States?
1: Right. Well, look, there, there's there's two things. Um, one is that, you know, it's important to understand that these actors are coming into these relationships knowing the history full well. Um, they are shrewd, astute political actors who know the history of, of U.S. betrayal um, and that that U.S. support is fickle. And so they are on their toes. They do know this is going to happen. But there is a cost-benefit analysis that says, at this point in time, this relationship is, is more beneficial to have now than to not have. Um, with that in mind, and that's the second point, is that it is beneficial. Um, the United States is a beneficial actor. Um, in, in you know, Both kind of needed each other, both in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, to achieve their goals, the United States needed a partner on the ground to fight the Islamic State, and Kurdish forces needed somebody to help them fight against the Islamic State on the ground and to carve out the type of autonomy and political power that they wanted. So, so it is very much a transactional uh, give and take relationship. So, in some ways, if it if it seems weird that, wow, like shouldn't shouldn't you know. The Kurds realize that the United States is not someone to trust. Um, the important thing to remember is they already know that um, in that they perceive that they will get something out of it. In, in in many ways, they have gotten a lot out of it, just as the United States has gotten a lot out of having Kurdish partners in the region. So, you know, it's a lot of shrewd politics going
0: on. So you've, you've explained sort of Washington's position, uh, Ankara's position, how do Moscow and, and the Syrian regime fit into this, this conversation, this discussion, and the geopolitics driving situation on the ground right now?
1: Sure. They, they fit in because they are additional sources of leverage and potential usefulness for the Syrian Kurds in this particular context. Now, it's worth noting that the Syrian Kurds have, have long tried to establish uh, relations with Moscow. Um, there's this idea that while the U.S. you know may be incredibly helpful for military operations on the ground in the north and achieving stability in the north, the Kurds do eventually need to have to make some sort of political settlement in Damascus. And so the question is, is who has the most political leverage um, over the Assad regime? And when you think about it, at least from a relative perspective, it's going to be Vladimir Putin. It's going to be Moscow. And, and to a lesser extent, um, would it be Washington. And so this is another example where, you know, the Kurds may may say, and you may see them, you know, engage in a way that says, look, well, if the Americans are now stepping aside, maybe it's time to talk to to Moscow a little bit more. What's important though to keep in mind there is again, this isn't some sort of spurning of the Americans. This is something that the the Kurds have been very astute in doing for a long time. They they know how to hedge their bets. You know, we, we talked about how you know, the Kurds understand a long history of of not being able to rely on America. And so this wouldn't really be a, a, a change in behavior. They've been engaging with the Russians for a while now, but we may see them, you know, fall back a little bit more on that political relationship. With regards to Damascus, you know, that's always going to be a tricky one, because on the one hand, you know, Damascus isn't exactly uh, friends of the Kurds in the north. However, you know, this could be one of those moments where there is a mutual um, a mutual kind of alliance that could quickly form and is probably going to be ephemeral uh, because they have a joint interest in blocking a Turkish incursion to Syria. You know, Damascus is going to view a Turkish incursion as a violation of its sovereignty. Um, and so, you know, we we saw this happen uh, in 2018 with the Turkish incursion into Afrin, which was this: the Syrian Kurds essentially reached out to Damascus and said, hey, like, look what's going on. Like, this is your territory, too, if that's the way you want to put it. Um, and so we kind of have a joint interest here. Um, now, like the, you know, the Syrian military officially didn't exactly intervene. There was some sort of paramilitary groups that came in. But the idea is, is that there always is an opening to do politics with the capital when you have a third party actor like Turkey involving itself.
0: So so at this point in the conversation with that I have with, with my guests, I, I'd sort of typically ask, you know, what moments or inflection points or events will you be looking towards in the near future or in the weeks or, or months to come that might suggest to you how this event will unfold? Uh, but I think sort of the obvious answer to that question is, you know, whether or not Turkey invades Syria. Uh, um, so I guess, assuming that there is some sort of military operation, Trump has warned them against, you know, going crazy, it, it seems, and, and sort of committing a genocide. Um, like will those warnings deter the, the Turkish forces? Like how bad could it, could it get?
1: Right. Uh, it's, There's a, I mean, a, a lot of things can happen. And, and as you said there, it's hard to know what exactly, you know, will unfold in the days and weeks going ahead. I, I think, I think almost with every single actor, that's involved in this story. There's the potentiality for slowing down, reversing, or speeding up. And so, you know, I think first, you know, take the United States for example. Will Trump change his mind? Will there be a new set of tweets in the next day or two that will effectively alter the the kind of understanding on the ground? Will there be a new White House statement? Will Trump's advisors? Will the Department of Defense um, or even the State Department somehow? try to get the president to walk back these decisions. I mean, this is something that happened with the December 2018 Syria withdrawal announcement. It's, it started out as something really fast and sudden, and then it had this slow, slow, slow walk back where different actors were stepping in trying to say, look, we actually need to take this you know, one step at a time and we can't do things very quickly. So, so first is, I think it's important to watch what's the U.S. going to do. Um, and also, what's the Department of Defense going to do, uh, you know, in terms of trying to convince uh, Donald Trump that, you know, maybe this is something that needs to be walked back a bit or slowed down a bit at the very least. In terms of Turkey. Right. I mean, they can they, there's there's many different ways this can unfold. They could either begin operations immediately. They may take their time. Um, they may do so um, in various ways of of, of different kind of uh, degrees of atrocity, um, but it's hard to tell what it's going to be. What we do know is that the Syrian Kurds are probably going to fight tooth and nail um, against the Turkish incursion when it does happen, um, as as they like to say. You know, for them, this is defending um, you know their families and their interests in the area. Of course, they're going to fight. Um, The additional question there, of course, is how are the Kurds able to respond to this, right? How long um, and how able are they going to push back against Turkey? How's that going to unfold? And then, of course, the big question is, is what about the Islamic State, right? I mean, it's something we haven't really talked about, but one of the big fears here is that some sort of confrontation in this area between the Syrian Kurds and Turkey is going to create a ripe opportunity for the Islamic State uh, to rear its ugly head again. And now the Islamic State is not—it's uh, down, but it's not out. It's around. There have been a number of pressing issues in the area, and will this create an environment uh, where they'll they'll be able to resurge in a way that will once again make the international community think, "Oh boy, maybe we we should not have uh, vacated this area as
0: quickly." Uh, well, Morgan, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Mark.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Morgan Helpful, as always. Very much appreciated his take on this rapidly evolving situation. And, you know, if you are a regular listener to the show, let me know what you think of how I approach these kind of in-the-moment news items. I mean, my take, my, my strategy typically has been to tried less to react to the momentary events of the day rather kind of take a step back and give listeners the background and context they need to understand the implications of these events as they unfold of, of a tweet that might be sent or a deal that might be brokered that's always my, my intention with these kinds of episodes but let me know what you think uh, let me know if you uh, you think i am succeeding in that intention And for premium subscribers, the bonus episode that I've posted this week is my conversation with Graham Allison. He is the author of a groundbreaking study of the Cuban Missile Crisis called The Essence of Decision and is a pioneer in a form of foreign policy analysis that takes a look at bureaucratic politics. Super nerdy conversation with probably one of my favorite foreign policy thinkers around that is available for premium subscribers to become a premium subscriber. Please go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or follow the links. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.